There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 201, would you believe? Good Lord. Henry VII and Ireland. Last week we heard about the appearance of Perkin Warbeck and heard how after four years of being fated, wined and dined around the grandest halls of Europe as Richard IV of England, Perkin, probably unfortunately in his view, was presented with an opportunity to prove it, with the present of money from Margaret of Burgundy. Now Margaret was a wealthy woman, but she wasn't the King of France, so the amount of dosh she could give young Perkin was a little limited, when it came to the furiously expensive business of hiring and equipping an army. But it bought the nucleus of an army, about 150 men, and Perkin could, after all, hardly say, no thanks. Now it was time to deliver and pay for all those pies and pate, and preparations began. In England, Henry and Bray had heard enough. Henry's obsession now was to secure his borders and the authority of his crown against all, to uncover and root out any plots against him, to close the door against pretenders. He was prepared to go to pretty much any lengths. He tried with all his might to get Maximilian and Margaret to expel Perkin from Flanders to the extent of imposing trade sanctions on Flanders. No English merchant was now allowed to trade with Flanders. Maximilian immediately retaliated in kind. Now, all this was massively disruptive. The life and fortunes of merchants and their employees on both sides of the channel depended on the trade. Goods piled up in warehouses. Riots broke out, as Londoners in particular suffered. Meanwhile, foreign merchants were able to continue to come to England to buy goods and then trade them on in Flanders. So English merchants watched as foreign carriers took their trade away. The English in London, never famed for welcoming foreigners, it has to be said, were enraged, and attacks on foreign merchants were common. Now, there was nothing Henry could do in the face of the intransigence of the Low Countries, but there was another danger that Henry could do something about, and that was Ireland. It was Ireland, of course, where Lambert Simnel had found support. After that rebellion, one of Henry's men, Richard Edgecombe, had gone over to Ireland. Most Irish lords had come in and they'd pledged fealty. Henry had essentially left it at that. But now he wanted a more permanent solution, albeit one that didn't then embroil him in a hideous morass of warfare and politics and expense, or at least if it could be avoided. But the Irish independence of action could not continue. Henry wanted control back. He had to shut the door in Perkins' face. And so, in the summer of 1494, he appointed a brand new shiny Lieutenant of Ireland. His name was Prince Henry, Henry VII's second son. At which point we are casually, through the back door, as it were, introducing you to the future Henry VIII, one of England's most famous kings. 
Henry had been born in 1491 at his mother Elizabeth's favourite house at Greenwich. Richard Fox, now Bishop of Exeter since Morton had gone to Canterbury, baptised the lad. Now remember, he's only the spare. The heir to the throne is Arthur, inheritor of the Arthurian legend and great hope of the Tudors. But nonetheless, the lad had a role to play. In 1494, at the tender age of three, Henry was made Duke of York to counter any sympathies Perkin might have had amongst the Yorkists and was dubbed a knight and given a celebratory mass under the auspices of Archbishop Morton. But I digress. You might have noticed that Henry is but three years old at this point. However talented you believe Henry to be, he was going to struggle to lead the government of Ireland. But of course, a deputy was appointed to carry the new Lord Lieutenant's authority and do all the actual work on his behalf. And this was a 36-year-old household knight called Edward Poynings. Poynings came from a family that had blotted its copybook ever so slightly, in that his father had been one of the very few nobles to support Jack Cade's rebellion in 1450. Really? And then he died fighting for the Yorkists at St Albans. But his son had worked and wormed his way back into Tudor favour, initially by being one of Edward IV's household men from the southeast who rebelled against Richard III, and he'd then joined Henry in Brittany on its failure. And then he'd proved his worth by royal service. Now, Henry didn't like rewarding his followers by making them peers, so where he could, he used the Order of the Garter as a sign of his favour. Giles Daubeny, for example, had been made a Garter Knight. There could only be 24 of them at any one time, of course, remember. In 1491, Poynings was also made a Garter Knight, and he was already part of the King's Council, so this is a man that was highly favoured. In 1493, he was sent on a fruitless delegation to the Low Countries to expose Perkin as a fraud, but Margaret would have none of it, of course. This competent, loyal, but not socially exalted man was the tool that Henry chose to send to Ireland. It's a very typical choice. Nobility were available, I guess. Thomas Stanley, John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, Jasper Tudor, Duke of Bedford. By now, the son of the Duke of Norfolk, who had died at Bosworth, was being rehabilitated too, working for the King in the North. But no, for this sort of thing, he chose the kind of men he really trusted. Men from the mould of Morton, Fox, Lovell and Bray. Men who are nothing without the King's favour. Now, it's a long time since we've had a serious conversation about Ireland. And this seems like the perfect time to have one. So, gentle listeners, let's do it. Ireland had different societies that shared the same island. As you know, just as the Normans had invaded England, so they invaded Ireland, intruding on Irish society and lordship and imposing an alien, feudal structure upon it. But unlike England, they didn't finish the job. Much of the western and central Ireland remained under the control of the original Gaelic native Irish. Political control from England shrank over the centuries to a small area around Dublin called the Pale, which I know I have mentioned before. Meanwhile, the descendants of the original Norman invaders still controlled much of Ireland too. Three families in particular, the Earls of Desmond, Ormond and above all Kildare, were enormously powerful. And so you have these sort of three groups, the native Irish, the Anglo-Irish, and then in the Pale and the Towns, the English-English. The native Irish retained their language, laws and culture. 
At the end of the 15th century, the Gaelic nation of Irishry, as it were, still stretched beyond the confines of the island of Ireland over to Scotland. So the MacDonald, Lord of the Isles, had a lordship stretching from Antrim in the north of Ireland to the west coast of Scotland. Now, as it happens, the Lords of the Isles were snuffed out by the Scottish crown in 1493, but that wider connection remained strong, particularly since a wave of Scottish settlers fled Scotland for Ulster in the north of Ireland. There would be another wave later in the 16th century. Power in native Irish society was very fragmented. Each lordship was its own society with its own history, celebrated by bards. Ancient laws were husbanded by hereditary judges. Lordship lay more in the control of a people, rather the control of a territory. Politics wove a complex pattern of shifting loyalties, while chiefs of lesser seps, that is, branches of clans, might owe traditional loyalty to a king, and through that king to a dynasty like the O'Neills of Ulster, for example, they might change their allegiance following the realities of power. They could appeal over the head of their immediate lord to a more powerful one to protect them from oppression. The result was a constant competition for power between the seps that looks as murderous as the Wars of the Roses plus some. In the late 15th century, for example, there was a feud between members of the clans O'Neill and O'Donnell. One of the seps of the O'Neills was traditionally hostile to the ruling O'Neill and so they allied themselves with the O'Donnells. Con O'Neill, head of the clan, was murdered by his half-brother in 1493, who then made himself chief, and was then in turn murdered in 1498 by Con O'Neill's son. There was civil war amongst the Maguires of Fermanagh. In 1484, Gilpatrick Maguire was slaughtered at the altar by his five brothers. So, in summary, it's complicated. It's violent and deeply unstable. Life, for many, was mobile. The population was historically quite small, though with all the caveats that any estimate at this time is basically an educated guess, but maybe it was as low as half a million. So settlements were widely scattered, houses were easily erected and abandoned, fields had temporary fences with great cattle herds that could be moved to places of safety. Raiding between lords was common. Much of the island was impenetrable and inaccessible. There were few roads, bridges or maps, the centre of the island was boggy and strewn with lakes and as yet undrained. Travellers were in danger of attack unless they had the protection of the local lord. So none of this helped develop the economy. Taxation was often in kind in the form of food or billeting of troops, though coinage did exist. In this world, the very idea of the authority of the King of England or Lord of Ireland was something of a joke. The Irish controlled their own destiny without any effective control from England lived under their own laws and way of life. The English-English did not understand the native Irish or their life and land. They failed to understand the drivers that dictated the Irish lifestyle and so dismissed the native Irish as barbarians. English governors who came and went described Ireland as the land of war. So they lived behind the walls of the towns, by and large, living under English law. They spoke English and they wore English dress. They made up maybe 10% of the population. And the largest of these towns was Dublin, with maybe 6,000 inhabitants. There were guilds, a wealthy ruling merchant oligarchy who dominated local government, 
a pattern repeated in many English towns. Trade was often outside Ireland completely. Travel by sea was often far easier than selling goods into the town's hinterland, though there were some called grey merchants who bought and sold amongst the native Irish, competing often with Spanish traders. Meanwhile, the society of the great Anglo-Irish lords was not much more stable. The ninth Earl of Desmond, for example, was murdered at the instigation of his brother. The Anglo-Irish lords held extensive territories in the south and east of Ireland. They maintained private armies of hired kerns and gallowglasses to be used against the native Irish and their competing Anglo-Irish lords. The Anglo-Irish sat uncomfortably between the native Irish and the English. They used Irish as well as English law as appropriate. They intermarried with Gaelic families. They fostered Irish children and Irish chiefs did the same in return. They employed Irish bards and wore Gaelic dress on occasion. You might remember the Duke of Clarence, Edward III's lad, putting in place the Statutes of Kilkenny in 1366, which was designed to stop all of that, to keep the Anglo-Irish completely separate. It hadn't worked as they intended, though the divisions between the native Irish and Anglo-Irish were certainly deep. Once more, the English, especially the governors sent over by the English kings, could not understand all of this and were not in any shape or form inclined to be sympathetic towards the Anglo-Irish. They saw degeneracy. They failed to understand that this was border country effectively. Big private armies by themselves could not guarantee security. Compromise, negotiation was needed as well. But let us not get confused by that. Whatever the English might think, the Anglo-Irish, or Old English as they are sometimes called, saw themselves as both distinct and superior to the native Irish. In Dublin, the English had brought with them all the component parts of the English government. Common law, the courts of King's Bench, Chancery, Exchequer, Common Pleas, the King's Irish Council and Irish Parliament. The native Irish were effectively banished from English Ireland except for providing muscle. They could hold no office nor land. They didn't make it to the status of third-class citizens because effectively they weren't citizens. In the late 15th century, a physical pale had been established with dikes and forks around Dublin, but nonetheless, at the edge of this world, it was a kind of grey area where English control weakened, local Irish control strengthened. It's all rather remarkable, a bit like Logan's Run, a world inside the dome, but with grey edges. If you lived in a grey area, a bit like living in the debatable land between England and Scotland, life was not pretty, with constant raiding and misery. In County Louth, for example, which straddled the Pale, the folks there would pay to preserve their safety to both sides. Black rent to the Ulster chieftains, taxes to the government in Dublin. At the top of Dublin government was in theory the King of England. I have been reminded that until later in Henry VIII's reign, the Kings of England styled themselves as Lords of Ireland rather than King. Hence, in practice, their authority was exercised by the Lieutenant of Ireland. The Lieutenant of Ireland had enormous power and autonomy. As we heard with Lambert Simnel, the shadow of Richard, Duke of York's time as Lieutenant, lay heavy on English Ireland, but really it was the determination of the Anglo-Irish lords to maintain their almost complete autonomy that had led to their support of Simnel, not any great love of Richard of York or identification with his cause. 
the Fitzgerald Earls of Kildare had not been the leading Anglo-Irish magnates for most of the 15th century. But towards the end of the century, the 7th Earl had consolidated his landholding on the basis of a long period as chief governor for the king. This allowed the 8th Earl to fly, as it were. Gerald Fitzgerald, sometimes called Garrett the Great or the Great Earl, was to be the greatest power in Ireland until his death in 1513. In his history, Howth described a man who was, quote, without great knowledge or learning, but rudely brought up according to the usage of his country. He was, however, quote, a mighty man of stature, full of honour and courage, a warrior incomparable, hardly able to rule himself when he were moved to anger, but then quickly appeased. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, here's a great example of how all of this worked. He built what became known as the Kildare Ascendancy by building his landed wealth, but also by making sure he had the military muscle available. He built a system whereby 300 kerns, galaglasses and horsemen were always available, quartered on his tenants or given their own estates. He managed alliances with Gaelic lords as well as English. His sister was married to the Con O'Neill we mentioned earlier. Five of his six daughters married O'Neills. From the point of view of the weak and divided Gaelic chiefs on the borders of his lands, Kildare was pretty much like a Gaelic overlord and his vassal chiefs. He exacted rents from them, Kildare spoke and wrote in Gaelic as occasion demanded, his court included a Gaelic entourage with a judge, physician, poets and other captains, and household servants. As a young man, he rudely demonstrated the realities of life to the English, in this case, Edward IV. Edward sent Lord Grey to be Deputy Lieutenant, a position the young Kildare had expected. So, Kildare essentially just withdrew support. Grey retired to England, Edward IV did the only sensible thing, and duly appointed Kildare. However, while Kildare wanted as much autonomy as he could manage, he wasn't seeking to become a King of Ireland or separate Ireland from the English crown or anything like that. He was more than delighted to have it sitting there as a source of authority. So what do you have here for the Old English or Anglo-Irish and the English King was a sort of a balance. Ireland is too far away, too different for the king to exercise direct control. English power in Ireland was too compromised, hated or loathe it, to rule without the local support of the Old English. On the other hand, the Old English had to be careful. If they messed up, like supporting a loser like Simnel, they stood to provoke an intervention with which they could not deal. So, Kildare and the Old English played a careful game. When Edgecombe came over after the Battle of Stoke on behalf of Henry VII, they sued for pardon like good apologetic subjects. When Edgecombe tried to impose the kind of bonds on them that Henry forced on its English nobles, they were appalled and would not wear it. They said, in horror, that they would rather, quote, become Irish, every one of them. Henry then followed a time-honoured strategy of building up the butlers, the Earls of Ormond, as a counterweight to Kildare, and dismissed Kildare from office. And essentially things got worse. Kildare again withdrew his support from government. 
And so we get to the point when Henry, threatened by chaos in Ireland that a cashed-up Warbeck could exploit, sent Poynings with orders to bring the Anglo-Irish to heel and re-establish royal authority in the autumn of 1494. And he sent with him 427 men. Yes, 427. Two-bit and make no mistake. But at first everything went swimmingly, no problem. Poynings immediately called a parliament and Kildare actually appeared to be supportive. Poynings probably assumed that Kildare must have thought cooperation was the best way to recover his position. Most of the Gaelic and Old English lords came in to offer their submission. Poynings was further reassured by Kildare's support with those in Ulster that did not appear. This is great, he thought. And yet he was no counsellor of Henry for nothing. He was suspicious. In the words of John Wayne, it was quiet. Too quiet. But never mind. The Parliament was also successful, from Poyning's point of view, passing 49 Acts. Now, 48 of these Acts had disappeared into obscurity. I could read you the one remaining significant law, but it sounds quite dull. And in fact, the purpose of the Act does not seem to have been what it turned out to be. To stop beating around the undergrowth, the Act said that any Acts passed by the Irish Parliament must be agreed to by the King and his council in England. Otherwise, any act would be void. Now, what was in Henry and Poyning's mind was to make sure that if and when Warbeck tipped up on the coast of Ireland, no Irish Parliament could meet up and create a load of acts as they had with Simnel. Henry was obsessed with his security and legitimacy. He wasn't a far-sighted strategist thinking about the relationship between England and Ireland. The real, long-lasting impact of the Act was to forever make the Irish Parliament subject to the English government and, in the future, English Parliament. Not only that, but the English Parliament might suggest and insist on changes to any Act passed by the Irish Parliament. So, in the end, in practice, the final form of any Acts passed would be set by the English Parliament, not the Irish. Poyning's Law, as it became known, had a profound impact on Ireland's capability to solve her own problems and develop any more integrated society. It became part of the story of the subjection and oppression of Ireland by England. But as far as Poynings was concerned, this was all excellent stuff. He remained suspicious of Kildare, though, and in the end, his suspicion paid off when he uncovered correspondence between Kildare and the very O'Neill that Kildare had apparently helped him bring to heel. It looked very much as though all that was a put-up job to win Poyning's confidence and lull him into a false sense of security. So, in February 1495, Poyning's arrested Kildare. He was subjected to the full works of Attainder and put on a ship and sent off to Ireland. Anglo-Irish Ireland went potty. Kildare's brother raised an army and seized the castle at Carlow, south of Dublin, in Leinster. The Earls of Desmond started generating support for Warbeck in Munster. Meanwhile, Poynings, remember, had brought 427 men with him. Oh, I tell a lie, there were 227 already in Ireland, so that's OK then. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, where does that come from? Warbeck had finally sailed from the Low Countries with Margaret's money and his 150 men. The plan was to head for Kent. Kent, as you will remember, was a cussed place. The peasants' revolt, 1381, Jack Cade and his revolt in 1450. So, 
Warbeck and his 150 men would land and raise the standard of York. The men of Kent would all rise and welcome the liberators and rightful King of England. Henry VII would run like a rabbit and all would be well in the world and a merchant's son from Flanders would be King of England. Hurrah! Oh dear. Henry and Bray knew exactly what was going on. When Warbeck's ships approached the coast of Kent, Henry's men were waiting in the sand dunes. Hopefully, they didn't have to eat cold, hard-boiled eggs covered in a faint dusting of sand, which is my abiding memory of sitting in sand dunes. Some of Warbeck's men came ashore to case the joint and were nabbed by Henry's hidden army. However, they did not catch the principal. Warbeck was still on the ship. It is unlikely that Henry was pleased with this result. I mean, it was better than having to run like a rabbit, you understand, but he'd wanted Warbeck so that he could put him in the kitchens. And now, Warbeck was off to the next country where he might find support, Ireland. And then seriously, how is Warbeck feeling now? It's been four years of this living a lie thing. He's about 21. Is he heartily sick of the whole thing? Or is he enthusiastically chasing his rainbow? I would love to know. But into the already complicated Irish situation, therefore, came Warbeck, landing in July 1495. He joined the Earl of Desmond, who was now besieging Waterford. Poyning sent letters begging for help from Henry, but communication was slow and Henry was quick to promise and slow to deliver. And eventually Poynings realised he was on his own. He raised as many levies as he could from Leinster and the Pale, added his 427 plus 227, minus any who had died of some medieval disease, and he marched south to Waterford. The result was as complete a victory as Poynings could have hoped for. The Irish and Warbeck appear to have been unable to cope with his artillery. Carlo was retaken from Desmond, and Desmond withdrew into the wilds of Munster. Warbeck raised the siege and ran away westwards, rabbit-like, and put back into his ships and headed north for Scotland to try and find a better ally. The opposition had melted away like the summer snow. Before long, Poynings was back in London with the king and indeed with Kildare. Henry, of course, should have been as pleased as Punch. Henry was not given to being as pleased as Punch. There was always a problem. The income from Ireland in a normal year was pretty low. Often it could be close to zero, but Poyning's efforts had lifted it to 1,500 Irish pounds. And it would rise further to 3,000 Irish pounds, which doesn't sound all bad. But Henry was looking at a bill of 23,000 pounds for last year's work. And although this might have been a little exceptional, there was the continuing cost of the garrison to consider. England didn't do standing armies. The only they kept were in the Pale of Calais and Berwick. So, Henry looked at his options, and he came to exactly the same conclusions as countless kings had done before. The conclusion was that the game simply wasn't worth the candle. Ireland was complicated, too far away, too difficult, too different. And anyway, Warbeck was now in Scotland, so everything was less urgent. So, the answer was right there in front of him. It was Kildare, the Great Earl. The Great Earl found himself on the well-trodden path. He'd just come down in the opposite direction, the path from zero to hero. Henry needed Kildare. The equation was Kildare's local knowledge and authority plus the authority of the Crown equals affordable peace in Ireland. So, Kildare's door at the Tower of London swung open and everything was sweetness and light. Before you could say Gallaglass, 
Kildare's attainder had been reversed, he was introduced to and was to marry the king's cousin, Elizabeth St John, and was sent back to Ireland as the deputy Lord Lieutenant. There were strings, of course, one of which was that Kildare was to maintain Poyning's law. Just to finish the story of Ireland and Henry VII, this policy worked a dream. Well, for Henry, anyway. Kildare proved energetic and aggressive, carrying the reign of the English further into Ireland. Henry created him a Knight of the Garter, his favourite way of rewarding his successful nobles, since it was cheap as chips, certainly compared to giving grants of land or money or something horrible like that. Kildare campaigned pretty constantly, and broadly successfully all the way through to the death of Henry VII in 1509. He was elected Justicia of Ireland on Henry's death, Henry VIII confirmed him in his role, and it was only a gunshot wound that finally stopped him in September 1513. But meanwhile, we ought to go back to following our hero, Perky the Perk. For a while, Henry's agents could find no news of him, presumably because his ships were bobbing around on the open seas. But then in November 1495, he resurfaced in Scotland. It turns out that we're doing a bit of a tour of the Celtic nations, so let's have a quick summary of the situation in Scotland. Though, if you want more, you might be interested, if ever so slightly irritated, to hear that on Shedcasts, the members only feed, there is currently a History of Scotland planned. The subscriptions to which Shedcasts, by the way, just like making people Knights of the Garter, is as cheap as chips. Anyway, James IV of Scotland. Being a king in Scotland was something of a challenge. Your average Scottish king would look with disdain at an English king who'd moaned he'd been forced to live in exile in Brittany and fight for his crown in Leicestershire. Pshaw, he'd say, that's nothing. You had it easy. He might go on to describe how he'd had to lick Lord clean with dung, but more likely he'd refer to the fact that he'd willingly and actively taken part in a rebellion against his father at the age of 14, the result of which was the death of his dad. Which is what James IV, the new King of Scotland, would have said. Though, fair dues. James had given specific orders that his father was not to be killed, and he now wore an iron belt in penance for the rest of his life. Of course, James was just a nipper at the time, so his personal rule did not start proper until 1495. It marked a distinct change in Scotland's policy towards England. Gone was the Pacific policy of James III. James IV's enthusiasm was being in a warrior leader, and an active participant at that. Pedro de Ayala, the Spaniard, who we've heard commenting on Henry VII's court, started off in Scotland, actually, and he wrote down that James, in 1497, said to me that his subjects serve him with their persons and goods in just and unjust quarrels exactly as he likes and that, therefore, he does not think it right to begin any warlike undertaking without being himself the first in danger. Now, if you are a warlike king in Scotland, you don't have many options about where to vent your violent feelings, outside Scotland anyway. It's England, basically, though maybe Ireland. James had already met O'Donnell of Tyrconnell, making an alliance and discussing the potential inherent in Warbeck. Now, James thought big, and he intended to be a European player, and for that, he needed allies. He'd started with Emperor Maximilian with a marriage alliance, but that had gone nowhere. So then he'd turned to talking to the Catholic monarchs of Spain, hence Ayala's presence. The experience had not been a positive one for James. Negotiations dragged on, then one day, 
James decided to open the Spanish diplomatic bag, as you do. What he found in there was humiliating. He found that the Spaniards had no intention of going through with a marriage alliance. The sole reason for them talking to James was to string him along as long as possible, stop him from attacking England, so that England would go and attack France for them. James IV was not a happy Hector. And just at that point, in November 1495, Perkin turned up on his doorstep. What happened next, we will hear all about next time. Meanwhile then, Happy Christmas and a great New Year. Remember what happened last year, don't let that happen again and remember you don't have to drink to have a good time. Actually, given the Sunday thing, we have an Anglo-Saxon England podcast on New Year's Day. So, have a good one and see you in 2017.